Hello, I'm Patrick Hurd, Principal Consultant at Community Business Australia, and welcome to Seen and Heard, a podcast about communities and the events and issues that shape the people and organisations within those communities. Each month, I'll be talking with industry leaders from a range of sectors and not-for-profit organisations, but I prefer to call them for-purpose organisations. I'll be talking about topical issues in a relaxed conversation style, so sit back and enjoy. Today's podcast is brought to you by our podcast partner, Australian Strategic Services. Australian Strategic Services has a proven track record built over 30 years working with boards, chief executives and executives of not-for-profit organisations. In this time, they've assisted almost 7,000 organisations with a wide range of strategic and organisational challenges. Australian Strategic Services assists organisations to develop powerful and practical strategies that position and help grow organisations. What's more, they ensure their long-term sustainability and their continued contribution to the clients that they serve. They also put in place practical systems and tools that assist clients to undertake their work. And to top it off, they assist organisations to re-engineer their business models and reinvent their culture. Australian Strategic Services really know their stuff. Today my special guest is one of the country's leading consultants for -for not-for-profit organisations, or as I like to call them, for-purpose organisations. Michael Goldsworthy is the Principal Consultant of Australian Strategic Services and Chairman of the Better Boards, where many of our CBA clients will know Michael and his first son, Raphael, for their annual NFP conference. Michael is actually in Romsey in, uh, in Victoria today, and I'm, I'm here in Brisbane, so we're, we're catching up via Zoom, so uh, uh, using all the all the recent technology. Now, Michael is an educator, facilitator, designer and futurist. He's combined his passion for the various human services industries and sectors and his governance and management expertise with his creative and entrepreneurial talents to guide thousands of what we describe as community businesses in the areas of aged care, hospitals, healthcare, disability, emergency services and many similar industries or sectors to successful and sustainable futures. During this podcast, I'll be delving into Michael's background, asking him what attracted him to advisory and consultancy services. Those of you who know Michael will agree that not-for-profit advisory and consulting and Michael are a perfect fit. I shall be seeking his insights into the future of Australian human services industries and sectors and some of the big challenges and risks and opportunities and ideas facing our communities and not just a worldwide health pandemic. Now, let me introduce Michael. Welcome, Michael. Oh, thanks, Patrick. Great to be with you and great to be with the listeners as well. Thank you, mate, and thanks for agreeing to be our guest on CBA's podcast, Seen and Heard. Uh, now, firstly, how are you feeling at the end of a very challenging year for many businesses and particularly many of your clients, I'm sure, who are navigating health, social and economic crisis over the last 12 months. How, how are you all coping uh, at the end yes, of 2020? How am I feeling? Well, very excited, mate. Um, I think we're, we're launching into a whole new world and a whole new way, uh, and I shouldn't dare say post-COVID because COVID certainly is still mm-hmm. there in a big way worldwide. Correct. But in Australia, I think COVID, for all the tragedy and, and uh, 
stress and de-stress and everything that's brought individuals and families and communities, there's also been lots of positives and upsides as well, mate. Sure, sure. Now, for our listeners that may not completely understand uh, the, the not-for-profit sector, and we know in any sectors there are all these acronyms that we tend to use, maybe you could just explain a little bit about not-for-profits and maybe the type of industry and sectors that they work in and obviously that you support. No, absolutely. Um, NFPs, and people might know them in other terminology, they might know them as social enterprises or community businesses or for-purpose organisations, etc. cetera, the same sort of terminology, but bottom line, um, they've got tax-free status, number one, <laughs> and, of course, that's always attractive to people. Yeah, yeah. But more importantly, they're there ultimately for social or community or environmental or similar benefits. Sure. They're not just there clearly for financial dividend or result. Of course. Um, but most importantly, I think, uh, if you look at NFPs generally, um, there's some 32, 34 industries or sectors of which they're across. And um, so you could be thinking museums. Yeah. For example, right. uh, you go to Ballarat and you'd go to Sovereign Hill. In yeah. healthcare, you could be thinking, well, you know, Royal Flying Doctor. Yeah. Or we could be talking sport and rec and we go, well, there's Cricket Australia and all the subsets of, you know, yeah. all the entities yeah. underneath that. Or we could be thinking of, um, you know, others, um, some of which merge in or stretch out into, you know, uh, co-ops and, and similar entities. So you might have dairy herd co-ops or, or other yeah. cooperative type yeah. uh, initiatives. And, of course, we've also got private health insurance funds. Um, we've got private health entities, which in fact, I'm talking NFP, private health, so your Calvary's, for example, uh, as an example. There's just so many, but there's about 34, 32 sectors or industries in in which not-for-profits operate. Round figures, about 600,000 in Australia. Everything from, you know, the West Wylong Beetle Club to the (laughs) (laughs) Tuberac Frog Society or something, whatever they are. I've been in West Wylong. It's a small place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you go all the way through to, for example, the Calvary's very, very successful Catholic entity, aged care, hospitals, healthcare, medical, etc. They're close on uh, about $1.2, $1.3 billion. So we're not talking a small machine yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. And a brilliant uh, enterprise and really contributions to society, particularly on the health, health front. Uh, and of those 600-odd thousand, about 60,000 roughly are what I'll call more commercial community business machines, really. Sure. sure. And, and you know, like I've heard you say over many years, that, that makes up a very big proportion of the economy of our country. So so oh, it's a significant sector in itself with all those combined 30, 32, 34 different parts yeah. of that overall sector. Absolutely. When you start going across, for example, uh, land, you know, people think of land care, you'd say yep. not-for-profit. Yep. You might even say, well, it's all the natural resource management uh, entities across Australia or the yep. catchment management authorities and similar entities as well, yep. let alone all the other environmental groups. So, yes, on lots of different industries or sectors or quadrants, um, we've got not-for-profits. But the other interesting quick fact is, Patrick, that when you go across every industry, it doesn't matter what it is, mm. typically their peak body, so if we went to the Australian Bankers Association mm-hmm. or it might be to the Victorian Automobile um, Association, you would typically find the peaks or industry peak bodies are all not-for-profits, mm. even though there are lots of public companies or private companies underneath them. <laughs> so 
you know, yeah. there's lots of interesting places where not-for-profits reside. Agreed, agreed. Now, look, I want to talk more about the broader human services sector and not-for-profit providers later in our conversation, but let's let's go back to what's the entree to the, the sector and the world of advisory and consulting services. Now, now, interesting, the Goldsworthy family heritage has significant history, firstly from England, then in Australia. Um, an important part of that history, I understand, Michael, was supporting children with pretty severe disabilities. So, you, you know, it obviously goes back in your own heritage, um, this, uh, this connection to uh, supporting those that are vulnerable in our community. So just give us a bit of an overview of, of that journey. An interesting little insight there you've discovered, Patrick. But, yeah, um, yeah. Mum and Dad had, you know, uh, four sons, um, uh, two two daughters, um, both of which are, are actually adopted with, uh, at, you know, some two, three weeks of early age, but were 110% part of the family, yep. still very strong. On top of all that, um, Dad was working, you know, flat, absolutely flat out, two, two jobs. I don't know how he ever did it. But Mum volunteered at St Nicholas's um, and a range of other institutions, which now, of course, are closed up because the institutional model of, you know, 40, 50 years ago is completely gone. Correct. In the area. Correct. But it was through that, of course, Mum used to come home and talk occasionally about some of the things she saw or was engaged in. And the other quick one is uh, when I was only very small, and I'm talking, you know, around four and five, I, I remember a young lady, she might have been about 22, you know, Phyllis, and, and Phyllis, you know, used to walk up and down the, the street and we were in a very uh, rural sort of area um, and, and occasionally making, you know, a lot of noise and waving her arms. Not many people understood her. And I specifically remember Mum telling me about how that she'd had acquired brain injury yes. and it was okay, you know, just stand there quietly and Phyllis will eventually settle down to come and, you know, try and communicate. So at that early age of yeah. around the four Incredible. I met up with Phyllis quite regularly and, and to be honest, I, I could never honestly understand what she said, but we had quite a relationship there. Mm. And, of course, the other thing that happened, I was born on the tail end of, of the years of polio. So I was a young right. chap in the area and he was, you know, calipers head to feet. Uh, and the third impact, which really did impact me, I remember as a very small child, you know, three, four and five, walking with a grandmother around the area, and there's a very large cage, a very large uh, reinforced mesh yep. where a young boy was occasionally um, you know, in there. And, and you're, you're going back nearly 60 years now. Yep. Um, disability was treated in a very, very different way. But that yeah. exposure, it's those images and that impact mm, was found mm. on me. Really, Patrick? Yeah, yeah. I, I was fascinated to hear and, and read some of that history, Michael. And, and you can see that's really impacted on, you know, obviously, your decision in terms of your career. Um, so let's let's talk about then, um, from what I've learned, knowing you over over 20 years now, it's amazing, isn't it, how time flies? It, it seems to me that, that you've had three careers. Firstly, a career in education. Secondly, in management and, and business development, but I think you've always been in that space. But anyway, and thirdly now in this advisory consulting uh, role, um, just, just maybe talk to us about how, this, how you progressed on this journey and, and eventually what attracted you to the advisory and consulting world. Um, I, I started out, as you correctly say, in education and uh, was fortunate, just like you, Patrick, in the, in the yeah. days 
scholarships, etc. Yeah, uh, yeah. scholarships and uh, all funded by government, which I'm personally still a very strong advocate that we as a country need to invest in young people yeah, or degree more tertiary education. Yeah, um, because there's more than just the financial return. There's a there's a lot of returns to society um, through tertiary education. Sure, but that in education, particularly into special education in the very, very early days uh, and even while I was actually at uni um, doing work experience in, in special ed and I suppose it was through that um, that I was lucky enough in the days of the, what was then the schools commission, there was yes. a heap of, heap of money around in the 70s, mate, let me show you, <laughs> different from um, and that equaled projects, you know, and projects and I don't know, somehow or other, in, in spite of lack of computers and you only have the old Gestetner, some of your oh, listeners will yes, God, the old yeah. Gestetner, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> and the old Metho uh, uh, rodeo copper, copier, I whatever know. it was. Yeah. Yeah. Way, you could always muck that up very easily as well. So, oh, yes, I remember them. Remember. And the ladies used to get their um, their, their uh, nail polish and, and that's fix right. over the, uh, the mistakes made on on the on the typing, but the fact was at the end of the day that submissions. Uh, I became very very good at submissions, which equal projects. Projects needed to be project managed, and before you know it, I was well, well and truly beyond education. Um, but did uh, I, when I look back, some amazing things with that money in terms of projects and uh, taking people's lives or young people's lives forward uh, toward employment, and of course then from there. Uh, from education into TAFE for a brief while into Premier and Cabinet and then, of course, from there into uh, the beginnings of consulting, um, which was really um, focusing around workers' comp road accident and two of us grew a little group from two of us to 49 of us. Wow. 70% of the road accident, of the workers' comp market, about 30 40% of road accident market. Yep. And that course, once again, really in reality connecting back to disability, although you're working heavily with insurers and yes. lawyers and, and so on forth, so forth. And, of course, um, that in turn um, went on to uh, where I went to uh, Australian Management College, Mount Eliza, or some people mm. would know it now as, as Melbourne Business School because Mount Eliza Business School merged yes. into yes. Melbourne. So it was a journey and common themes throughout it, as you correctly say, uh, education, uh, of people, engagement of people, um, getting people's heads and hearts connected to go forward. Mm-hmm. But the other underpinning principles of project management and a strategy and most importantly the engagement, facilitation of people on a journey, you know, a, yeah. a journey. Without it, you, you can't take organisations if you're not gonna, anywhere, if you're not going to take the people somewhere. Correct. Now, Michael, I often hear uh, that, it's, that it's said that good consultants are made, not born. Is that true for you? Has it been a journey of development for you? <laughs> well, I, I look back on my life so far and I'm only still pretty young at, you know, 66. <laughs> very keen to keep working, let me show you. I love the process, the activity and the people and the achievements and that. But I suppose um, are consultants really born or made? Well, I suppose there's an element of genetics there. <laughs> there's an element of, and there's also an element of your training and experience Um but what, some of the great things that have happened for me, Patrick, has been mentors. You know, at high school I had an individual teacher, um, Moya Edge, who took a lot of interest in me, a lot of interest. Um, I yes. was at a very academic school and, to be honest, I was more interested. I think Miss Horrock, my my history teacher, said, 
uh, quote, if Michael wasn't so jovial and paid more attention to his studies, he might get somewhere in life. <laughs> <laughs> the fact... Have, have you seen us since? <laughs> uh, sorry, it would have passed on by now. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> but, but the fact was really um, mentors, you know, Moyer Edge and, and then Ruth Mainbridge at, at, at uni and then um, Trevor, Professor Trevor Pimento, who's still around today, uh, and Bev Richardson, my fourth mentor, um, you know, those people throughout my career, I don't know why, they, they, they said, well, you know, there's Michael, he's doing things, he's doing projects and activities. They provide a continual guidance advice, you know, okay, they're giving a bit of a tick off or a directional resetting. But without those mentors, Patrick, um, I don't know, I don't know if I would have been as successful as I've been and more importantly translated my knowledge back into organisations because there's, there's real value in mentors and I suppose as, the more you learn, the more you see and, in fact, the more you don't know. Absolutely, uh, and yeah. You said a learning. So, yes, there's genetics there but there's also a continual set of learnings and experiences and it's not just tertiary education, it's the actual, you know, being in, in, in the trenches, doing the job, working through all sorts of jobs and projects and assignments that you really start gathering up ideas, information, patterns of behaviour, uh, solutions, you know, and on and on it goes. Well, I've been very fortunate, Michael, just as you mentioned, you know, your four significant mentors in your career to date that uh, I was fortunate to connect with you over 20 years ago and, um, you know, that was um, really important for my development and um, I really am grateful for how you took me under your wing and gave me significant guidance at that stage where I was really more in a management uh, framework at that point and wasn't even considering um, consulting as a, a career path. So so you're right. I, I think that they can be very influential, can't they, in terms of how they help guide your career but also just um, help be a critical friend at times in, in terms of where, where you find yourself. And many of these people, as your listeners would know, come with immense... Um, experience a life journey but they they come with knowledge and even more importantly they come with wisdom yes and it's the small comment or or the or the 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 strongest statement or the reference to a particular concept or attachment to another network or a a key individual can really help guide you um but you can also go to them with the challenge and issues you're facing etc yeah yeah agreed Let's take a short break to learn more about Community Business Australia. Community Business Australia is a boutique consulting firm working exclusively with not-for-profit, or as we like to call them, for-purpose providers, working in a range of social services sectors. Our clients operate in the aged care, disability, community, health and charitable sectors. Our consultants are experts in their chosen field. They become trusted advisors to the board and CEO. Community Business Australia helps organisations grow and CEOs meet their KPIs. Visit our new website at cbanow.com.au. Follow us on social media and contact us directly via phone or email to see how CBA can help your organisation grow. All right, welcome back. So I'm talking with... um, Michael Goldsworthy, and for those of you who know Michael, um, over the years he's been um, regarded as being quite famous for his many unique models, diagrams, 
flowcharts, tools, resources, many articles, presentations on not-for-profits and the not-for-profit sector. Um, uh, within the human services industry and sector in which you operate, you know, there's these, there is complexity, ambiguity, yet your very powerful models and diagrams always seem to provide a framework and, more importantly, clarity to so many people. Um, and I... <laughs> And I note that one of your nicknames is Mr. <laughs> Mr. Squiggle, of course, your many, uh, many years back. In fact, recently I saw a photo of you very, very young uh, in your drawing career. Uh, and over your long career, it's placed a lot of emphasis on these models. So I just want to tap into your, your reasoning for that because it, you know, it comes across very powerful. Anyone that knows you uh, would have seen you jump up and draw up models, would have seen your presentations, would have really, really seen the effort you put into ensuring those models are important part of the work you do. Yeah. Well, it all started, I was about two or three and mum and dad bought a TV. It was a tiny little box, you know. A yeah. man came in the afternoon. He did all this tuning behind the TV and this black screen and all this test pattern came up. And eventually the first thing that came on about 2 o'clock was Mr. Squiggle. Oh, God, really? <laughs> Mate, I watched Mr. Squiggle every session thereafter. Mind you, the TV used to go off for quite a while in the afternoon and come back on for the evening news, and then it was good night. Yes. So I'm talking pretty early, and I'm not that old, as I said. I'm a yeah. pretty young fix, but the reality was. Uh, but moving on forward um, uh, in doing a degree, um, my first degree was a big, big streak of art and a huge streak of art, design, et cetera, through um, my career, yes. my earlier days of training, et cetera. Um, but what really brought it to a head was I was uh, at Louisville uh, on a management, you know, one in those days I went away for one week management training when I was yeah. safe, and uh, a very famous chap uh, who some of your listeners may know, John Cumnick, who's uh, got an amazing career, you know, worked for the BHP board, Telstra board, like he's a, just an amazing career, similar to yours and mine, Patrick, yep. in many ways, I'm out yep. of education. We were at Louisville and I, I jumped up in front of the group and drew all these models and diagrams trying to interpret what people were saying about the issues at hand and John said to me, turned right around to the whole group and he said, Michael, you have captured it in a picture but at the end of the workshop, he gave me a specific mention and said, you've got to continue with these models. Keep doing it. This is an incredibly powerful way to communicate wow. them, yeah. both, both the picture, the story, and everything that goes with it. So from there, uh, went on in a big way, uh, which has evolved over time parallel to computers because in the mm. early days, mm. I don't believe, you, you were lucky to even draw a straight line with a computer. Sure. <laughs> let alone a curved line, let alone put w words around the, the circle and let alone actually have it in colour. Sure, yeah. But here we are today, the power of, you know, yeah. the Apple Mac or whatever you happen to use. Yes. And graphics, design, flowcharts, models, Gantt charts, but particularly those models and that, uh, yeah, I've got an absolute passion and dare I say, I'll be proud enough to say that I can see the most com or come to understand the most complex situations or complex organisations and within one or two models, draw it up and say to people, is this what you mean? And right. they typically say yes. And if they don't say yes, well, they don't understand the model. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, I, go, I walk it through carefully all the parts. But oh, it's a powerful resource, Patrick, to, if you can, if you're yeah. able to use it. 
Agreed, uh, agreed. Yeah, I've I've used many of them myself in in my facilitation as uh, as a way of really summarising, but also bringing everyone to an agreed position uh, and, yes. and understanding of of the key issues they're facing as an organisation. Yeah. All right. Now, as a consultant, obviously you move around a lot. And uh, I understand that you're a Platinum One member of, of Qantas and a Platinum member of Virgin, oh my Lord, um, with a thousands of flights over a 30-year-plus career. So there must be what I would call loads of um, plane adventures, particularly in those early days. Um, and obviously oh, yeah. our wings have been clipped this year. But um, tell us, maybe, maybe pick out a, a story of, uh, of note yeah. from your early days of flying around the country. Well, look, I can tell you so many plane stories. What do you want? The one that was where we were hit by lightning? Do you want the one oh with the door? Light? Do you want, you know, what do you want? But oh um, yeah, I've certainly had plenty of adventures on planes. And when we go back to those uh, very early days of the 70s, um, and I was uh, doing a job uh, mid-70s uh, and through to about the early 80s uh, on King Island. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I used to fly over there every week. We're doing the, the very first multi-purpose centre. Oh, um, yes, yes. Now, uh, now they're now called multi-purpose services, but it was hospital aged care, et cetera, et cetera. Correct, know them. Anyway, um, turtling over there, the door, and this is in a the Haviland, the door at the back, door flies open. <laughs> One pilot, six of us in the plane, pilot get, leaves the seat, walks down the aisle, Straps himself into the very back seat, leans out, I don't know, 20,000 feet, whatever he was, pulls the door in eventually, closes it, and we keep going. Blow me dead, we're coming into land, the door comes open again, we nearly die from the fumes, you know, four oh, in. Yeah, yeah. Back. Pilot doesn't, <laughs> doesn't close the door, but anyway, we survived. And another great adventure on King Island was. Um, Jeez. Our little plane landed. Our second lot of people landed in behind us. Uh, they were just taxiing in close to us and there was an enormous crash. I turned around on the tarmac and the tail had fallen off the plane. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that wasn't the worst of them. Oh Once I did, no, this is actually, let me think back. We had chartered a plane to go from Launceston to, to Queenstown. Yep, gotcha. On the west coast of Tassie. But what happened was there was three of us in the plane. Blow me dead. Uh, the plane landed. We got out. I looked around. I couldn't see Qantas Club anywhere. There was an old garden <laughs> shed to the side. Pilot takes off. Torrential rain commences on the West Coast. We're in our suits. And I suddenly realised we're at Zeehan, not Queenstown. We're in the wrong <laughs> And another Zeehan adventure. We, we took off, uh, might have been two or three months later, uh, and the Zeehan Airport ended in tea tree. Yep. As we took off, blow me dead, we could not get enough height and we scuttled through all the tea tree and caught on one of the wheels an old gate. <laughs> this is the most dangerous one other than the lightning story. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Plane went 30, virtually 45 degrees. I true to God thought this is the end of us all. Oh and Lord. somehow the gate came off and the pilot zipped around all the tea tree and we took off. <laughs> Mate, I can go on and on with oh, planes. Well, that, that's, that sounds like we need to continue that over dinner and a few red wines, I think, at some stage oh, in the future. I was, I'm proud to say I was 
and this will tell you how planes have changed. I came from Brisbane when I was working at Mount Eliza Business School. Um, I came from Brisbane one night. I was the only person in the plane. Wow. The only person. In those days, the plane left at 8 o'clock, it left at 8 o'clock. Yep. It'd be like a bus. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas today, of course, what do you reckon? Unless it's full, they're not taking off. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, mate, I'm in plane stories galore, I can tell you. But really, many of those adventures, they've all changed rules, regulations, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Safety's improved, probably, thank goodness. Thank as well. goodness, yes. You're lucky to get out of some of those incidences. Now, yeah. um, as I mentioned in um, our introduction, 30 year history, over 7,000, it seems extraordinary, 7,000 not for profit uh, mm. organisations. And I'm sure you've seen your share of the good, the bad, and the ugly of the human services industry. So let's focus on maybe the good and the successful providers. And what do you, what do you sort of summarise the key characteristics of what you observed of successful not-for-profits? And I know you've worked with large, small, and pretty much everything in between over those years. Yeah. Well, perhaps to set the scene, if you think about it, one way of looking at not-for-profits in all their forms, uh, and in fact, you could say all sorts of providers really, it doesn't matter yeah. Yeah. profit or public companies or private companies, whatever. But there's, there's categorically leading providers. Yep. Um, you know, five, typically five to seven, eight, ten percent if you're lucky. Yes. There's a big bunch of, you know, following providers, upper, mid, and lower providers. And then you've got your 20 or 30 percent resistance. Now, this, this is a classic case, for example, if we went into aged care, whether it's in home care or in residential aged care. Mm-hmm. So if we took focus on the leaders or, or the upper followers, maybe a little bit about the mid-followers. It's more the upper followers and, and the leaders. A couple of key observations, um, which is nothing new for many people when you think about it. Number one, excellent board, excellent CEO, excellent senior team or executive team. Yep. That triangle, yep. the leadership team. Yep. At, at Mount Eliza, some of the, the professors and gurus there used to say, you know, Michael, get when you're working with these organisations, work hard to to re-engineer that board so you've got an excellent board, get an excellent CEO in place and an excellent executive and, honestly, everything else will happen. And there's no doubt really because those people bring what I call the primary intellectual capital. Yep. Yeah. And then, of course, they can work on both opportunity or challenge uh, and gain the resources. And I've seen so many, so many examples of the turnaround and there's some immensely great stories around Australia of that happening. I, I won't even go through all of them by any means. I haven't got time, but yeah. uh, certainly that's number one. Number two um, would be that, that those people um, come, many of them come with, not all of them, but many of them come with immense depth and breadth and wisdom and, and they're quite humble uh, and they will be seeking out other ideas, other information. Yeah. And so you get connected to them and as a consultant, and you might feel this yeah. yourself, Patrick, at yeah. times, you're not a consultant, you're part of the family. Yep. So whether you're internal or external like you or I are, mm. you're actually part of the family or the mm. unity of mm. that organisation. Mm. Mm. They don't see a vision between internal people, external people. It's people who are connected to a vision or a dream or a passion Yes, and on they go. And perhaps the other one is um, non-profits. It's, it's an important principle, but you're making sure people get their heads and hearts connected. Yep. And what am I saying? How do we balance 
and how do we integrate all the new business objectives and outcomes with all the service objectives and outcomes in order to achieve a vision or a mission or, in fact, the strategies or projects. But that head and heart connected. Non-profits in the past were very much heart and not much head way back, <laughs> whereas today, in some of them, I fear a bit and are quite concerned that the money, the buildings, you know, the capital, the balance sheet, they're losing the plot. You've got to bring head and heart together. Yeah. Even mission and purpose. That's who we are. Yep. Uh, that's what we're here to represent. That's what we're here to present to communities, to families, to individuals, yep. to you know, in whatever work we're doing. Many of those organisations you work with, um, uh, support and guide, are, are working through some significant strategic transformations, reforms, challenges. So, you know, Michael, what are some of the big governance, strategic organisation challenges they face? And what strategies are they putting in place, um, you know, for the long term that you that you see? I think one of the challenges is, well, let's make the assumption we've got the right board and you know yep. CEO yep. in place. But even then, there's the, the there's a chat. One of them, number one, is they're cl- clearly working for the management team, etc. They're clearly working flat out in the business. Yes. And here's the board and and people like myself and yourself and others asking them to work on the business. Yes. So that's, that's a big enough challenge in itself. But now if we think about the current disability reforms to the NIS, if we think of all the hospital health reforms, mm. if we think of all the aged care reforms that are and will come out of the Aged Care Royal Commission, yeah. and we can go on to mental health and you know, lots of other areas, the reality is also, particularly in EG, um, aged care and healthcare, we're saying, well, we've got to transform the organisation Yes. We've got to re-engineer the business model and we've got to reinvent the culture. In other words, we've got to make the gigantic shift and lift yes. from here up to here. And we know through all the research, McKinsey, Harvard, etc., that only about 33% of organisations truly, truly can transform, successfully transform. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what I observe all over Australia, the uh, the mid-followers, low-end followers, even a few of the upper followers at times will say, oh, no, Michael, no, well, we, we're really ready for the, our new world in our sector or industry. I'll say, well, what have you done? And they tell me. And all fundamentally what they've done is they were a beautiful red telephone box, ripped out the handset, glued in a mobile phone, stuck, you know, solar panels on the roof, <laughs> put an antenna up there, put wheels on it and push it around saying we're ready for the new standards or the new funding model or whatever the heck it is. The reality is their business model is fundamentally the same. Yes. They have not transformed. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I, I've never seen you walking around with the old bag phone anymore, Patrick, the old brick. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> You've moved on. Correct, correct. You know, I've been with you. I've never seen you drive into the old-fashioned petrol station and sit there waiting for the guy to come out and pump the petrol. Yep, that's right. Driving a huge, you know, flow-through retail, you know, machines really that yeah. Where yeah and get petrol and everything. So this world of change is a significant, significant challenge for leaders, whether the board, the CEO, the exec team, or in fact leaders at any level of the organisation. Um, yeah, yeah. That, that's a really big one. Now, as, as um, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, one of Michael's talents is that he's a futurist. He's able to comprehend various human services industry and sector trends, you know, by reading the tea leaves as such. Combine that with, as he mentioned, all this government policy 
reforms and provide clarity for a future landscape for providers to navigate significant reforms and changing stakeholder expectations. So let's put that to the test, Michael. Um, so um, uh, you know, all these human services sectors that you've, you've uh, mentioned in your, in your conversation today are at different stages of this reform journey. But, you know, change is probably the only constant that we're seeing for some of these providers, like competition, as you mentioned, business models, stakeholder expectations. They're all rapidly evolving. So what's the future for not-for-profit, for-purpose uh, providers in Australia? A short, sharp answer. I think an excellent future for not-for-profits of any type in any industry or sector uh, or any human service industry sector if they are well-prepared. And if they've really got focus, if they become disciplined, if they're a leader, if they're an upper follower, possibly a mid follower. But if they're a low end follower or resistor, goodbye, Nelly. Good line. Mm. So I think being able to, um, as leaders, un, uh, you know, recognize the past, the past behaviors, attitudes, approaches, models, yes, ways yes, of running, yes. understand the present. Yep. Behaviors, attitudes, approaches, systems, structures, etc in your organisation, in order to look to the future. But the other component behind that is actually putting time and effort into understanding what I call the stage and the backdrop, you know, Act 1, Scene 1, Act 2, Scene 2, Act 3, Scene 3. So a practical, really big, very big picture example, oh, 30-plus years ago, um, and you've seen many, many versions of this model, but it all says the same, if you think of, uh, and we'll just talk post-Second World War as an example. Yes. You know, the, was around the Second World War, very much a charitable paradigm of, of working, of operating human services. Um, and before that, it was a religious paradigm. And before that, Indigenous people, Torres Strait Islander people, had their own health system and their own uh, health approaches, etc. cetera, um, yes. and various work. Um, but the fact is, of course, a religious paradigm moved to the charitable paradigm, Second World War came between World War One and Two. Federal taxation came in, and of course, then we got into the welfare paradigm post Second World War. Mm-hmm. It was Jeff Kennedy in two thousand. It was a world, in fact, it was a worldwide movement where we moved into this customer-driven competitive market paradigm. And I've always, on top of those, predicted strongly that the this customer-driven competitive market paradigm will have a relatively short life because we will increasingly and quickly move into this, what I'll call um, social, environmental, economic paradigm. And I think COVID particularly has driven a recognition at an individual level, family level, community level, business levels, government levels of the need to get greater balance between society, the economy and the environment. And whether you come off the the horrendous, you know, Arctic melt um, Mm. and some giant environmental problems that we are facing, plastics in the ocean, uh, rising uh, carbon and, and other chemicals, etc. in there, or you come off some of the wicked social problems or some of the giant economic problems or challenges we've got around, not just around Australia, but around the world. Yeah. If together, I truly believe that in that new and emerging paradigm, which is starting to happen now, um, non-profits, those who've got the ability to, to rise up to the occasion those leaders can really step forward. Mm. We've got a tremendously great place um, in the future of, of communities, families, societies, regions, states, however you want to you know, look at it. Um, 
yeah, a great place and space um, for not-for-profits. And a quick snapshot bit of evidence there. Um, recently, um, Stuart Brown and, and Grant Thornton, a couple of other similar groups, have actually made mention through research of how a number of those leading and upper not-for-profits, e.g. in aged care or in-home care or disability, yes. are starting to outperform by many metrics, not just money metrics, but including money metrics, um, their, their achievements are up against public companies and private companies, etc., who have come into the space thinking, oh, we'll make a fortune, we'll do well, and you only look at their share prices and trends and you go, oh, well, perhaps, perhaps they haven't. But the profits have learned, they've adapted. You know, they've adapted to this new world, customer competitive, and that's quickly adapting to this social, economic, environmental paradigm. Well, Michael, um, I've really enjoyed our conversation and, and uh, I certainly could, could stay for hours talking to you about some of those plain stories for a start, but, but your journey as a consultant has just been fascinating over 30 years and so many organisations that you've supported and guided and, and worked alongside of in all that time. So finally, for those uh, leaders that are listening to our podcast, uh, you know, I've heard you say this many times yourself as well, you know, what are the takeaways, what are the big messages for them as they look to lead their organisations into what many say is uncertain future, although I, I'm, I'm very encouraged uh, by your enthusiasm for the future from our conversation today as well. But what are the big takeaways for them? I think number one is it's actually a personal uh, takeaway, and that is that leaders actually need individually, whether it's the board members or CEOs, exec teams, or it might be a facility manager or a care coordinator or whatever they are, doesn't matter. But whoever's leading is, number one, taking time to, to personally and deeply reflect. How am I travelling? How am I operating? Uh, could I improve? Where's my strengths or weaknesses? You know, gosh, you know, when I look back, what's been some of the troubles I've had? What are some of the opportunities I've had? How can I get – what are the key learnings – and improvements I can make. So there's, there's number one. Yes. About, it's about individual and self-reflection. Yes. I think number two, um, getting connected um, to, it might be mentors per se, it might be a mentor, it might not, but to other key individuals, mm. people of influence, people who advocate, people who, who are at the cutting edge of thinking and so on. Uh, I used to work for a period of time, we didn't mention it, Patrick, but I worked for a, a guy called Serge Decanzo. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, uh, you'd know in Brisbane yes. you've got accounts. Yeah. You know, he personally owned, built those and he owned, owned them yes. as one of a huge property uh, guy. Uh, and he had a son with a disability, which is why I was actually working for him. That's a whole other story of setting up a, Australia's first uh, not-for-profit with no government funding at all. Right. Um, but, but the point really was there, he used to say, surround yourself with people better than yourself. Yes, and that was really his success. All the consultants he employed, and there was lots of them, um, he brought the best of breed and it really mm. seriously added value to his overall vision and dream and aspirations. That's number two. And the third one, I think, at the end of the day is that as you go forward, it doesn't matter whether you're internationally, nationally, state, organisationally or even locally successful, the key thing is what's the personal contributions that you're going to put back to society or back to a community or back to an organisation or back to others? Now, some people call that volunteering, but I'd go further than that. I think at the end of the day, you know, look at people like myself or yourself. I'm so humbled that Australia invested in me through scholarships, et cetera, yeah, yeah. 
my training. They've invested me in lots of other ways through my health journey and other, other things that have happened to me. But the point is you say, well, I've had a great life. I've had a great journey. But along that way, haven't I actually given back? Have I contributed in small, medium or large ways? It doesn't matter. Mm. But as long as you're contributing to others, because it's easy in this, you know, I see a bit of it and you probably too, too yeah. in our list. There's a fair bit of me, 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 you know, more assets, more goodies and everything. That's fine. But at the end of the day, there's much that can be done off the learnings and knowledge and resources you've built yourself to help others, whether it's your family members or friends or, or colleagues or other people you just happen to meet along this life's journey. Michael, um, again, thank you so much for your time today. I know that uh, it's a busy time of year for you and um, wish you and your family all the very best for a, a well-deserved break over the Christmas New Year period and uh, um, I share your enthusiasm for 2021. As you say, it's, uh, it's not post-COVID, we are living with COVID, but uh, there's certainly a lot of optimism for us and our uh, not-for-profit sectors that we support uh, in 2021. So thanks again, Michael. No, not at all, Patrick. Great to be with you and, and uh, a, a fantastic uh, initiative you've got here in your little podcast. Great and well done. Thanks for having us along. Uh, and next time we catch up, I'll tell you a few more of those exciting plane stories, mate. <laughs> yeah. Three more. Oh, yeah. <laughs> thanks again. Thanks, Michael. All right, mate. Catch you later. Thanks also to Derek Tan and his team at Generator, our marketing and communication consultants, for producing this podcast. And thank you for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Join us again soon when we talk to another industry leader about the issues that shape our communities. Until next time, I'm Patrick Hurd and this is Seen and Heard.